water. I think it's water. And if you bend it like closer to your mouth, touch the Okay. Good luck. Good? Yeah. A couple of really good questions during the break that I asked people to bring up. <clears throat> but first, I want to tell you a story about Pastor Clemmer and Pastor Barton, where when they were hunting the other day, <laughs> when I was here eight years ago, so some of you remember, and the thing that you remember was the stand-up comedy that I did, and I'm so ashamed of myself. But I thought if you remember the jokes, maybe I'll tell some jokes. So, <clears throat> the pastors were uh, out hunting. Pastor Barton fell over and he clutched his heart. And he fell over and he stopped breathing. And Pastor Clemmer was kind of panicked. So I think he had a heart attack. So he called 911. And he says, I'm, I'm here in the woods, I'm hunting with a friend, I, I think he had a heart attack, I, I think he might be dead. And the operator said, oh, no, no, calm down, calm down. The first thing we need to do is to, is to make sure that he's actually dead. So it's silent, and then, bang! And then Pastor Kramer gets back on the phone and says, okay, what next? <laughs> I accidentally wrote a dad joke this morning um, at coffee. Let's see, I'll try it on you. It's just, it's, I've, I've written six dad jokes all about fish, and every single one of them tanked. Okay. Okay. There's a question. Remember your baptism. <laughs> uh, question about... Could you tell me your question again? Um, about the conscience of heart and the conscience? If, um, this is an important thing. Can I use the whiteboard? Can you see it? Can, um, <clears throat> the devil is invested in hardening the conscience. He wants us to have a calloused conscience. And, and, and the way that the devil tempts us, I mean, there's a handful of ways that he does it, but the, the basic way the devil tempts us is he flips law and gospel. Um, he, it's, it's supposed to be that we preach the gospel backwards and the law forward, right? Moses for today, Jesus for yesterday. We have it, like in the catechism, in the morning and evening prayer, may all my doings in life be pleasing to you, we pray in the morning, and then at night we pray, forgive us our trespasses. So as we look backwards, we, we see our own sins and failures, and we ask for forgiveness. As we look forward, we see... The, the, we look at that according to the law of God and what are we supposed to do. What the devil wants to do is reverse it. And so he, he wants us to tempt us to sin. He says, oh, the, this ASL word for sin, by the way, American Sign Language is, is this. This is So uh, lead us into temptation, not. So temptation. And it's like someone's coming along and going, hey, why don't you come over here and check this out? So the devil's always leading us to temptation. And, and he uses the gospel to get us to excuse it. Hey, nobody's going to hurt. No, no one will feel it. It's not going to be a big deal, whatever. And then 
Can you imagine how the devil... So then you commit a sin, and then the devil starts to say, well, how could you possibly have done that? You call yourself a Christian? Look at this wicked thing that you did. And you say, well, devil, you're the one that told me I should do it yesterday. Like, well, never mind that. I can't believe you. No. So the devil always wants the law to be preached backwards and the gospel to be preached forward. That's an abuse of the gospel. To use the gospel for to excuse sin is to abuse the gospel. That's not how the Lord intends it for us. Always the, the law tells us what to do, and the gospel sits and forgives sin. But what happens then is as the devil tempts us to sin, um, oftentimes it ends up hardening the conscience. I think it works like this. I remember visiting a man um, in prison, and uh, and he told me the story of how he got there. And if you think of this as like a, think of, think of this as like the sixth commandment. Okay. And uh, this story is actually a pretty common story. Uh, it starts with breaking the sixth commandment in pretty subtle ways. So we'll hear Jesus say, if you look at a woman with lust, you commit lust in the heart. So you have lustful thoughts. And then comes along lustful activity. This especially has to do with probably pornography. And then it gets involved in sexual immorality. And then, uh, and maybe you're wrestling with it, and so you think, oh, I'll get married, that'll fix the problem, but then you get married, and that lust, lust of life is still there, and there's adultery, um, and, and, and then, so what happened was, that this was kind of, continued carrying on until, finally, um, there was someone that he worked with that was underage, and that adultery continued there, and now the FBI was pulling him out of his bed at night and putting him in a very good prison. Okay. You say, how did it get there? Like, how did, you know, if you, if you were to take, just, like, take the fifth commandment, you know, and it's true that when you're looking down on the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, to be angry with someone is the same in the Lord's eyes of committing genocide. It's, you're all guilty. But this is very different in our lives together. I would really prefer that you all were angry at me, but put down the ice picks, you know. It's like, I could stab you in the back of the ice pick or be angry with you. It's all the same in God's eyes. Well, it's very different for me, right? <laughs> And it's also very different in the conscience. I think one of the reasons why the devil is after us in, in regards to the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is because remember what Paul says, all other sins of man commits outside the body, but sexual immorality can be inside the body. And so there's a there's a there's a, a commandment specific hardening of the heart that happens. Now I think that's kind of bound together, but so you can see how this goes. Like one thing that would trouble you today, well you get away with it a couple of times and and now it's not so bad. And your conscience is becoming more and more hard. Like maybe you have a temper, let's just do the fifth commandment. You have a temper so you get angry at people, you yell at people, uh, you go get in bar fights or whatever. How many of you get in bar fights? Brawling. <laughs> and then you, you, you just body becomes more and more violent and more and more violent. You just don't, you normally just don't like wake up and decide to go and shoot people. It normally is this process of the conscience being hardened. And each one of us, now here's the thing, each commandment has a kind of spectrum of, like, and Jesus will talk about it this tomorrow in the Sermon on the Mount, like anger is here, and murder, genocide, is here, and there's a lot of whole, there's a whole gradient, and every one of you has, your conscience, according to the fifth commandment, has a place where it's callous. And <clears throat> that's also according to the sixth commandment, and according to the seventh commandment, and according to the eighth commandment. You have a place where your conscience is callous. Now, the devil's strategy is twofold here. The first is 
the way that he, the way that he hardens the conscience is he'll tempt you to sin here, not here, here. The temptation comes for us not way up here where our conscience is aware and sensitive and knows that it's wrong. The temptation comes here where our conscience is barely starting to make callous. So that, you know, the conviction of callous is like if you don't wear shoes all summer, you get that hard one so you can walk on and you don't feel it. This is what happens to the conscience. It just doesn't feel the pain of it. And so the devil is working right here and that incrementally is kind of building up the calluses on our conscience according to Eastern Man. Now, <clears throat> the devil does not have access to these kind of sins most of the time unless he gets you drunk. This is one of the reasons why drunkenness is it's just sort of an instantaneous hardening of the conscience. Uh, and depending on your particular inclinations, it could be a fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth command of hardening of the conscience. And it hasn't built an excuse. So that's one of the reasons why, especially the, uh, the devil wants to get young people drunk more. The old people, their conscience is already hardened. <laughs> but you're born with a pretty tender conscience. So the quicker the devil can get you some sort of substance to speed up the hardening of the conscience, the better. Right? And then the other thing is that the devil has access to all of these sins underneath that kind of line of the heart and the conscience. He has access to all of those sins to use you to sin against your neighbor. <laughs> so all the sins that you're tempted to and here, you don't even really have the you don't even have the capacity to recognize the sins. Remember how Paul says it like this, I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. So we covet all the time, but we don't feel, for whatever reason, covetousness hardly ever shows up in the conscience. It's like the stealth bomber of sins. It just goes below the radar. And so the devil, that's, that's, and that's really how sin starts. Remember James chapter 1, sin is born in, in covetousness and desires, and it works its way all the way through. So that maybe... Maybe my conscience is troubled here. Like I would maybe never go out and punch someone in the face, but I'd yell at them. Because my place where my conscience is hard is here. So if the devil needs someone to be yelled at to trouble him, then he can tempt me to do it, and I'll do it, and it doesn't even bother me. So, so this is how the devil works. And this is not only true according to each of the commandments, it's also true according to people. Have you noticed this, that your conscience acts differently depending on the person? Especially if there's someone who's your enemy, someone who you're angry with, someone who, hate, who you hate, someone who's hurt you, then your heart is hardened towards them, so that you treat them in a totally different way than you treat anybody else. And that most of the time happens in family. That we're so used to each other that our hearts become hardened against each other, and so you treat your family or dismissively or whatever. It's one of the hardest things for me as a pastor is when husband and wife come uh, and show up, and I realize how hardened their consciences are to one another that they don't even feel any pain sinning against each other. In fact, it's one of the marks where you move from being in opposition to one another to being an enemy. Is that everything that's done? good is understood as an offense. Like if I thought that Pastor Clemmer was my enemy, and he brought me a cup of coffee, and I'd say, oh, did he spit in it? Or is he, try, is he just pretending to be nice because he wants something from me? See how that works? Like even a good work is received as a sin if I think that you're my enemy. So, so anger, this is what anger does in the conscience. It's like Novocaine. Remember how the dentist gives you that shot so you can't feel when he does all the terrible things to you. It is that anger is like Novocaine in the conscience. And, and so I can sin against that person and I don't even feel it. They deserve it. After all, look what they did to me. And you can think of it in your family, the people that aren't talking to each other and how that happened, and it's because one person sinned against another, and then now they treat that person totally different than they treat everybody else because their conscience is hardened against them. So you can have sin-specific hardening of the conscience, you can have person-specific hardening of the conscience, you can have commandment-specific hardening of the conscience. 
It's one of the reasons why I think Luther tells us in the Catechism that we go to work singing a hymn of the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments is the way that the Holy Spirit tenderizes the conscience. So that I realize that it's one of the reasons why we have the preaching of the law. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, you've heard said you shall not murder. I say if you are angry, you've murdered. Jesus is trying to tenderize our conscience so that we recognize that, that we're sinners all the way down. And we're guilty all the way down. That that crooked heart gives the fruit of crooked desires, crooked thoughts, crooked words, crooked deeds, and so forth. So I think that's part of the devil's strategy of working with the conscience. It's a frightful thing to think that whatever my like, level of hardness of heart is in regards to, say, the Sixth Commandment, now the devil has access to me to use me to hurt other people. So, we always want to be making this part of our, our sanctified life as Christians, tenderizing our conscience. It's one of the dangers of modern Lutheran thought that uh, we, we contrast ourselves with pietism, which is rightly so, we should, with the idea that I can be pleasing God by my own actions. The result, though, is that we almost, that we've made having a tender conscience uncool. And if you meet someone with a tender conscience, you're like, ah, pietist, or ah, go back to the Methodists, or whatever. No, it, it should, the, the Holy Spirit wants us to have a tender conscience, especially to our own sin, uh, especially to our own guilt. Good, good question. Is that helpful? Yes, words that kind of fit into the whole conversation of conscience or guilt and shame. Yes. And I know sometimes, like, maybe I'm scolding my daughter, and she may get a little defiant and say, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. Right. Uh, which I often respond, well, maybe you should feel guilty. Right, that's right. But the society, it seems to me, does try to promote the idea that guilt is in and of itself a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so the question and feeling guilty and feeling ashamed. And the society says that guilt is altogether bad. Guilt is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. You know, guilt is the conscience saying, hey, that's wrong. But we are, we are motivated towards silencing the voice of the conscience. And so we, we are trying to shut down guilt. Now there's a difference between objective and subjective guilt and a difference between objective and subjective shame. So you can be guilty but not feel it. So, so if someone says, you're trying to make me feel guilty, I said, well, how you feel doesn't matter, you are guilty. And, and, and this is where, you know, here's an interesting thing about our feelings, is that Okay, so let me, something else on the Lutherans. Because for whatever reason, we decided that we, that feelings, most American Christians are all about feelings. Like, how do you know you're close to God? Because you feel it. How do you know God loves you? Because you feel it. Uh, and most American Christians are, they've lost that love and feeling. <laughs> That's uh, and we say, no, feelings don't matter. In fact, most of my pastoral work is telling people that their feelings don't matter. Like, I feel like I should do this sin. Well, I don't care, because God says not to. Or, I feel like God is not close to me. Well, your feelings are lying, because God said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I feel like God has abandoned me. Well, your feelings are wrong, because God says, I'll, I won't abandon you. I'm with you always. I forgive your sins, etc. But we should pay more attention to our feelings in this way. And that is that our feelings are given to us by God to serve His truth. So the first thing about feelings is that, number one, we can repent of feeling the wrong way. Now that, this should blow our minds because our culture does not think that feelings can ever be judged. Right? They just are. These are my feelings, and there's nothing wrong with them. But if God says, you shall not covet, then he's saying that even your feelings 
and your desires are under my law. So that if I feel the wrong way, I can repent of that feeling. If I, for example, don't feel like God loves me, I should repent of my feeling being wrong. If I don't feel affection towards my wife, I should repent of that. Well, why am I going to serve that feeling? The feelings are supposed to serve the truth of God's word. Remember back in the good old 70s, uh, the 7X fight? How many of you remember the good old 7X fight? I wasn't around, so I'm just checking. <laughs> I heard about it, though. They were talking about the Bible, and did the Bible contain errors or not, and some good Lutheran theologians developed this understanding, is that our reason has to serve the Scriptures, not rule over it. They said that we confess the magisterial, we reject the magisterial use of reason, and we have the ministerial use of reason. In other words, our reason is given to us to serve the truth of God's Word, not to rule over it. So that our reason tells us what the Bible says, not so that it can reject it, but so that we can know what we're accepting. So you have something like, this is my body, and our reason, if it was ruling over it, would say, that's ridiculous, it's not body, it's just bread and wine, we should reject it. No, the ministerial use of reason says that, no, Jesus says it's bread and wine, so that's what he's clearly saying, so now I'm going to believe it, even if it doesn't make sense. Well, just like we have the ministerial use of reason, we also have the ministerial use of emotions. The ministerial use of our feelings. If our feelings are wrong, then we repent of them. But if our feelings are right, we rejoice in them. So sometimes you don't feel forgiven by God, and you repent. Sometimes you do feel forgiven by God, and you, as a good Lutheran, get really nervous about that. <laughs> you shouldn't be. God be praised. If your feelings match what's true from God's Word, it's great. It's great. This is how John says it. He says, if our heart, um, if our heart condemns us, we have one who is greater than our heart. And if our heart does not condemn us, we have assurance before the Lord. So if your heart tells you you're not forgiven, you say, heart, who are you? You're not the judge. But if your heart tells you that you are forgiven, you say, well, God be praised. It agrees with what's true. So we probably need to be less afraid of our feelings and more kind of repenting of our feelings. I can't remember what the question was. Okay, good. You just kicked me down the you just kicked me down the hill and I rolled. I can't remember where I started. Okay, let's look at Genesis. Um was there one more question? Excuse me. Uh, Genesis. From Revelation to Genesis. If you were to think of our own cultural moment and how our secular culture in the United States stands against the truth of God's word, you would probably, I don't know, there's probably a lot of things that you would talk about, right? What are some of the ways that you, like when you just think of our own culture and where we are, what, what do you think of? Opposition? Love of self? Powers? Yes, we're uh, we had the, it's the tolerati. <laughs> it was Pastor Clemmer's uh, vicar supervisor, who was my pastor, Warren Graff, who said the tolerance is the worst ever item in the civilization or society. And he said, just he says, I just can prove it to you very simply. If you could just go home to your wife or your husband tonight and say, Oh, honey, I tolerate. <laughs> it kind of gives up the game, but it's all about tolerance. Yeah, that's so stupid. Yep. What else? 
Yeah, trading truth for lies. And any specific that you're thinking of? Hard to tell right from wrong. Yeah. A woman can be a man, or man or woman, or all this sort of stuff. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? That we were that we've been marching for a hundred years in a sexual revolution, and all of a sudden, five years ago, it switched. At least it looks like it switched to us. And all of a sudden, it was not so much about a sexual revolution, but a gender thing. So we live in this grand experiment of personal autonomy. How much can I be a law to myself? What else? Yes, sir. Disregard for facts. There's a and there's a breakdown of the of of who can even trust for facts. So you have the fake news, and and even if something is a fact, what does that mean? It might be true, but it's not. It's it's a fact, but it's not true. I heard that the other day. Well, that might be a fact, but it's not true. Yes. Sir. Wrong seems right, right seems wrong. Yeah. Anti-Christian. It lies to itself. They'll say if a, if a woman wants to become a man, that's wonderful, but masculinity is toxic. <coughs> yeah, so uh, a, a woman can become a man, but masculinity is toxic. That's ironic. So you better become the right kind of man. Or the right kind of woman. There's a weird thing that... Generally, when, if a man is becoming a woman, he's not becoming like a grandma wearing knit sweaters, you know. The men who are becoming women look more like prostitutes. And uh, I wonder if I should tell a story about that. No, I'm not going to be enough. <laughs> After lunch, I'll be. I'll tell some more. Yeah, what else? Yes. Yeah, that Supreme Court Justice was asked what's a woman and she couldn't give an answer to that. It seems so crazy, right? What is a woman? So, one of the temptations that we have is thinking that all oh, this is new. And, and I want to spend some time maybe making this argument that all the things that we're facing now, including the move for uh, gay marriage, and including the transgender movement, are in fact not new at all. But they're just as old as it can be, and that the, the church has faced this before. And that the root of all of it is Gnosticism. So what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is the false uh, religious or spiritual idea that matter is wicked and evil, and that the spirit is good. That's the basic idea. Now, Gnosticism is like a parasite. It shows up on everything, and it, and it, it kind of piggybacks on, on all, whatever sort of ideology is there. So there's Jewish Gnosticism, that's probably the, like the Kabbalah. There's, the, there's um, Muslim Gnosticism. You remember the whirling dervishes? That's one of the ways that Muslim Gnosticism shows up. Then, which is, by the way, a very interesting thing. Have any of you ever looked at Muslim hymns? You get, it's very difficult to tell the difference between a Muslim hymn and a contemporary Christian song. Very, it's amazing, actually. Um, so there's mysticism there. There's Christian mysticism. There's uh, secular mysticism. There's Greek thought. It's very mystic. It's the idea that there's a that the matter is bad and the spirit is good, and it's been from the very beginning. So I want to look carefully at the fall because because one of the things, one of the ways that the devil tempts us is to think that freedom comes from throwing off the Lord's constraints. And, and we, we must know better than that. Remember Psalm 2, come let us cut the cords. Uh, we don't want to be bound into anything, to any sort of order or structure or command or anything else. And so freedom is found in throwing off the constraints. But we want to be very clear that that's, that's the way to find death. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3. Also, Genesis chapter 3 is necessary to look at because I wrote one other joke 
and it has to do with Genesis 3. So, it's coming, don't worry. In fact, most of the time, I would encourage you to lower your expectations. But this is fun. No matter how high they are, we will meet them. Okay. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now that at first, that's already ridiculous, right? I mean, here's the devil and this dragon, right? You're not supposed to eat any of these trees. Look at all this fruit. You're not supposed to eat any of it. Well, they could eat all of them one. So the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God says, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now if we read carefully, we've noticed that what Eve repeated back to the devil was different than what God had told Adam. Uh, in three ways. Eve adds the prohibition for touching. Eve misses the double death that the Lord said to Adam on the day that you eat it, dying you will die. So Eve's thinking only about the death, the physical death. And also, Eve seems to think that it's a cause and effect kind of thing. Like it's a poisoned fruit so that the eating of the fruit will kill them. Rather, when the Lord told Adam, if you find yourself eating the fruit, you've died twice. So the eating of the fruit is not the cause, it's, the, it's really the effect of the sin already committed in disobedience to God. Now, how you can ask, Pastor, how is it that Eve gets that wrong even before the fall? And I've got, I, I don't even know how to think about that question. I mean, I've, I've tried to, I've tried to, I tried to nose into that question a little bit, like sniffing around, and I can't even find a way, I can't find a door handle to go through the gates to get to that question. I don't know. But so it is. So verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For, you, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now what's the knowledge that the devil wants to have? It's the knowledge of evil. They already know what's good. In fact, Excuse me. God, God created them good, very good, so that they do that. So the only thing they're going to, the only thing that's going to be added to them is the knowledge of evil, right? That's what the devil wants. But, but I want you to notice something else, and this is a key thing for understanding temptation. Do you see the first four words of verse five? For God knows. That. Now, we could take out those words, and it would still make sense. In fact, I'll just confess to you that I think for my whole life, until maybe three, four years ago, I was reading this passage without those four words, as if they weren't there. This is what I thought the devil said. Let me read it to you again, starting with verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. In the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Do you see? In other words, I thought that the chief argument that the devil was making had to do with the nature of the fruit. But that is not what the devil is concerned of. He's not concerned about what Adam and Eve think about the fruit. He's concerned about what Adam and Eve think of God. God knows. God knows that on the day you eat of it, you won't die. And God didn't tell you. God lied to you. He said that you would die. Because God wants to hold you down. God wants to keep you in bondage to himself. God wants to limit your freedom, your choices, your life. He wants to keep you for himself rather than let you be free. So that the devil twists God's commands around as an oppressive, binding, legalistic enslavement. This is the, the devil's basic argument, is that keeping the commands is being enslaved. 
and then breaking them is freedom. So Eve, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise, there's, there's three probably things that are happening here, but this has to be with Eve and God and Eve with herself and Eve with Adam. All these things are being broken in the temptation. She took the fruit and ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. Now, in the fig leaves, remember, we see the, we see the picture of every natural religion. This is what we do. We cover our shame with our own works and efforts. And it works fine until the sound of the Lord comes in the garden. We, we can think that we are righteous until we hear the preaching of the law of God. Oh yeah, but this is the joke. So they stitch together their fig leaves. And then Eve comes out from behind the bushes. And she says, what do you think? These are my fall colors. So that, um, so that, the, that and, and Adam probably said, oh, you look great. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a big deal. I thought we were going to be dead and everything. But look, this is fine. But then they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And then the worst ever happens. They realize what they've done. They realize that they're guilty. They realize what they've, that that they have sinned and that their sin has broken the universe. Remember the, the sound of the conscience, the sound of the, the neck of the universe breaking. And they run and they are found there. Don't miss this. That when God finds them, where are you? He finds them hiding from God. Adam and Eve and the dragon are all there together. Now beautifully, beautifully, the Lord is gonna is gonna fix things, and this is where we're gonna we're we're gonna see the beginning of the culture wars. Uh, so let's look at verse nine. Excuse me. The Lord the Lord got called to Adam and said to him, "Where are you?" So he said, "I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked." I hit myself. <laughs> Sorry, that just reminds me of another joke. This is like the most serious moment in the history of the world, and it just makes me think of jokes. It's pretty bad. But there's a pastor who went to visit someone, and, and uh, he knocked on the door, and he heard the person inside, knew they were there, and he knocked and knocked, and they never came and answered. So he wrote a note, and he, and he said, Revelation 3.21, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And that Sunday he went to church and he found a note on his door and it said, Genesis 3, uh, 10, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. <laughs> I hit myself. Can you imagine though, um, that so... Here comes Jesus in the garden. And instead of running toward him with joy, oh, it's so good to see you. We're so happy for all the gifts you've given. And by the way, we figured out how to make like banana smoothies and also we sorted out a gravitation the other day and all these things joyful things that Adam and Eve would be learning and discovering and instead of running to the Lord they run from Him that's the first death by the way running from God, the spiritual death running from Him trying to cover up our nakedness by our own efforts running from God verse 11 they said who told you you were naked, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat the woman and boy oh boy, the woman you gave to be with me she gave me the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you're cursed more than the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. <clears throat> we'll just notice that cursing comes up twice in the text. And the two things that are cursed are the devil and the ground. Not Adam and Eve, by the way. The devil and the ground are cursed. But then verse 15 is our key verse. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Can you imagine? Here the Lord is preaching the first gospel to the devil. And he says, he says this, you see this thing here? You see how this is going? You see how you three are friendly with each other, hiding in the bushes, and you're running from me? That is not going to last. I'm going to fix this. If there's going to be enmity, it's not going to be between me and you. It's not going to be between me and you, Adam. It's going to be between you two. I'm splitting you up. It's an amazing thing that when the Lord says there's going to be enmity between the devil and Eve, he's taking the enmity that was between himself and Eve and putting it there. In other words, the Lord was saying to Eve and Adam, I'm not at war with you. Boy, we got to let that set in. The Lord is not at war with us. And then, I mean, how does Paul say, but while we were his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And then, between you, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now you have to think that the devil at that point says, wait a minute, I don't have seed. I can't have children. There's no... Mrs. Lucifer. <laughs> Little Lucifer Juniors running around. Right? Can you imagine? Oh, well, some of you might doubt that. We had a friend who they named their dog Lucifer. <laughs> that wasn't the first day, but it was after two weeks the dog's name was Lucifer. <laughs> you might have met him earlier anymore. But this is the point. The devil, there's no there's no marriage with the angels. There's no little baby angels. They were all created with one thing, just forever. They don't have seed. They're either given in marriage or they're married. And yet, look, the Lord says to the devil, I'm going to put enmity. And this is rubbing it in his face between your seed and her seed. Now, Pastor Cornelius was here last year for this conference. I was at a wedding that he was preaching in December. He was preaching his daughter's wedding. And he was preaching this text. And he preached it beautifully. I'm still... Every time I preach, listen to his sermons, I just listen and weep. It's so beautiful. And he was talking about this particular text. How would it have been with Adam and Eve? Who realized that they just destroyed everything. Right? They were given this garden. They were given one another. They were given dominion. They were given the command that be fruitful and multiply and have children. They were married to one another. And, and now they're under the bondage of sin, death, and corruption, and the devil. And they, and they come to the Lord and they say, Oh, God. Do we always have to be under the devil's tyranny? And the Lord says, no. Enmity is here, not here. And then the, and then the Adam and Eve would think, well, we hate to be so bold, but are we still going to be able to be married? And the Lord says to Adam and Eve, even after a fall, yes. I mean, it says it to Eve, remember? The, uh, uh, your husband, your, your, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, which is a pretty difficult thing for the Lord to give to the Eves. But Eve has to say, I can still be married to Adam. And then Adam and Eve would say, Can we still have children? Can we still be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? And not only does the Lord say, Yes. But the Lord says that your having children is, will be the overthrow of the devil. Your seed will crush his seed. He will bruise your head. He will bruise his heel. It's a picture of a barefoot farmer coming across a snake out of the field. And the snake goes to bite the heel and he crushes the head of the snake with his bare foot. So that he gets bent, but the snake gets destroyed. And that's the picture of the crucifixion. So that, but, but notice this. That the Lord has promised the overthrowing of the devil.
through the birth of a child. The very thing that the devil can't do. Now, there's all these old church fathers like Hillary and Bernard who talk about this. And, and Luther likes to talk about, I mean, I only know Hillary and Bernard because Luther mentions them. So, if you were tempted to think, oh, Pastor's pretty smart because you read Hillary and Bernard. That's wrong. I only read the church fathers that Luther quotes. <laughs> this is another like patristic knowledge. But he loves to quote these two because these two talk about why was the devil so jealous in the first place? Why did he fall? And that's because the Lord created the angels and then he created people and then he sent the angels to serve the people. And, and that was to be for them, that was something that was that the devil couldn't stand. He despised it. He didn't want to be there serving the people. So he rebelled and now tries to overthrow them. And so the devil attacks people in precisely that place where we have what he does not. It's an amazing thing, actually, that the devil who can't have children is destroyed by the, by the seed of the woman. Now, Adam and Eve understood this. It's quite amazing because in just a few verses, Adam, who had made everything, now is going to name Eve, right? And it's lucky that Adam was there because I think about this like if it was up to me and I had to give this lady a name, I would have probably called her Moth. That's the Hebrew word for death. <laughs> or trouble or whatever. Fruitcake. Thank you. Because of the fruit and she ate the fruit and all Anyway. But, but, okay, so, no, don't tell that joke again. But Adam is a Christian and he calls her Eve, which means life. Life, not death. Life. Because from Eve would come the child who would destroy the devil. And so much did Adam and Eve believe this, that when Cain was born, their firstborn, Eve says, I have begotten a man who is the Lord. She thought that this was the one that was going to do it. This is the one that was going to overthrow the devil. Now it turned out Cain was a bit of a disappointment in that, <laughs> in that realm. And that the seed that would destroy the woman wouldn't come for oh, you know, 4,000 years until the virgin conceived. The Lord Jesus was born. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. Now, from this very moment, from this place in the garden, the devil has been at war with Adam and Eve and marriage and children. So that we look at our own culture and we say, boy, look at where we are with all of this fighting against what's true and what's false about God's word. We look at this, what's true and what's false about marriage. What's true and what's false about man and woman. What's true and what's false about children. I mean, uh, 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 we look at the, at the war against abortion, uh, the fight against euthanasia and all of these sorts of things. And we realize, boy, the devil is still fighting from the garden against babies against conception, against babies in the womb, against marriage, against being fruitful and multiply and having dominion. It's been from the beginning until now. Now this is important because we want the Lord's word to tell us that we are not that important. The, 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 the battles that we fight are not that hard. In other words, it's no different than it's always been. I think we have a great temptation to think because our memories sort of purge out how bad things used to be and plus we're not that old, right? So we only remember 50 or 70 years ago and so we don't have that deep of a memory and the things we do remember always seem kind of nice. So that we always want to think that today and that right now is a lot worse than it's ever been, but it's just not the case. It's been the same from the beginning to the end. The devil has always been fighting against the seed. And the seed always prevails. Now this is not only true when it, when it comes to um, marriage, but it's also true when it comes to transgenderism. It's, an, it's a weird thing that we think that this is a new and a modern phenomenon, but it's just not. 
So I'm just, I just want to check here, just the age of everybody, so I can know. That. I gotta, I gotta, I, I, I want to be careful about how I describe things. So let the reader understand. But there's evidence of uh, transgender practice that goes all the way back in the old pagan stuff. So, for example, and I might have to be a little bit coy in the way that I give some of these details, but if you go back to Ephesus, remember Ephesus where Paul was, and where the sons of Sceva were, and where Philip wanted to get dragged out to the theater and everything, Ephesus there? In Ephesus, they have the Artemis Temple, this great goddess, Ephesus of the Ephesians. And you can still see her statues all over the ruins of Ephesus still today. The, the Artemis Temple was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, this big Artemis temple. That the priests of Artemis were men who would emasculate themselves and offer their removed uh, parts uh, to the goddess. They would have a little funeral service for the their body parts and wrap them in linens and bury them in the temple of Artemis and then they would dress as women and serve as priestesses in the Artemis temple at the time of St. Paul. Uh, there's others in Asia that would do the same thing. In fact, there was one uh, cult that they would do the same sort of wild... And, and then in Ephesus they had a... they would actually be baptized. They had a... just exactly like this... <laughs> they would have a they would have the stairs where you could go down into the ground but instead of having water they would fill it with the blood of a bull and also bull gonads and they would go down into this this vat of bull blood and come out can you just imagine how pagan that is oy, oy, oy. And they would come out drenched in this blood of the bull, and then they would no longer be considered men, but they were priestesses. They'd wear women's clothing, women's jewelry. They would serve as priestesses in the Artemis Temple. Imagine if that was happening at the church next door. <laughs> it would be like, whoa, things are pretty bad. That was what was happening in Ephesus. Or in another place in Turkey, they would do the same thing, but the men would emasculate themselves. And then they would take their the parts removed, and they would run through the town and throw them through the window of a house. Can you know how pleasant that would be? It's like you're sitting there having breakfast and Cheerios. And, then, well, <laughs> and whatever home was identified by this priest, they would have to then, they were required to provide women's clothing and women's adornment for this man now presenting as a woman, and they would go and serve as a priestess in the temple. This goes back all the way, so that even Isaiah speaks of it. Remember Isaiah 56? He says, say to the eunuchs, let's look at that, actually. This is an amazing thing. This is the idea of being a eunuch in the ancient world. <clears throat> or androgyny. Look at Isaiah 56, verse 4. Well, verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. So, a non-Hebrew person comes in to the faith in the Lord, and they are not now permitted to say, The Lord is forsaken. No, they're part of the Lord's people. It's faith by faith. Or, nor let the eunuch say, here I'm a dry tree. These are these pagan priests who had made themselves eunuchs in service to the pagan gods. For thus says the Lord, the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, and choose what pleases me, and holds fast to my covenant, even to them I will give in my house, and within my walls a place and a name, better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that don't miss the irony that shall not be cut off. Now, now, just to let this sink in just for a moment. 
that the Lord's people have been dealing with the problem of what's now called transgenderism since the very beginning. It was preached against here. It was preached against in, in Isaiah. It was, but it was not just preached against, but there was comfort that was offered there. Yes, sir. That passage has been used by ELCA pastors to <clears throat> suggest that God embraces transgender. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, the, 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 um, noted that this passage has been used by the ELCA to show that God embraces transgenderism. He does. The Lord does. He, and uh, let me be understood rightly, is that it is not our sin that separates us from God. It is our unrepentance. So someone's a transgender. Are they loved by God? Absolutely. Are they accepted by God? Absolutely. But the Lord's requirement is repentance. The same thing is true of every sort of sexual abomination. And, and this is one of the reasons why this is so tough for us. Because we want to speak very clearly about what the Lord says. But, but we want to speak very clearly not only about the law, but also the gospel. So the problem with the whole transgender movement is that it says that these practices of a man becoming a woman or a woman becoming a man are not wrong. Well, of course they're wrong. And of course they're an assault on the image of God in each person. But is there, a, is there hope? Is there life for someone, for example? I mean, this is one of the big problems that we're starting to see, and it's happening quickly. People who, I mean, there's whole groups of people who, you know, who regret their transition, right? Whole groups. That it has to be the church to, it has to be the first to say, hey, welcome here. This is where you belong. The Lord has not rejected you. The Lord has not cut you off. The Lord is always forgiving sinners. There's a danger that we become repulsed by the sins that don't tempt us rather than repulsed by the sins that do. Remember the way that the conscience works? It's like, I can't even imagine that. So that must be really bad. But this sin over here that I kind of like, that's not that bad, right? So we have to be very careful about that, and we have to be very ready. Now, the way I think we're most ready is by seeing the, the thing that's under there. So the ELCA is, I mean, I, they're totally wrong, because they're tripping over themselves to try to say that there's no right and wrong about anything. I heard the story about the ELCA. This is the craziest thing. Did you hear this story? It was a, there was a transgender bishop who was disciplining, who was disciplined because this person, which I do not know if it was a man or a woman, I can't remember. I, maybe I could remember. I, I tried to find out and I couldn't determine it. So anyway. Uh, transgender bishop who got in trouble because this person disciplined a Spanish pastor for something because he was celebrating the uh, someone has to remember the story they were celebrating the Gua Virgin of Guadalupe or something like that and the transgender bishop got disciplined because they, did, they were not culturally sensitive to the Spanish thing or whatever and it's like at some point, this, this kind of contest of wokeism just ends up destroying itself, right? Like poor J.K. Rowling, who's a crazy feminist and, and says that you can't be a feminist if you don't know what a feminine is, and she just gets lambasted for everything. It reminds me of Revelation 17, where at the beginning of the chapter, it, showed, it has this picture of a whore riding a beast charging in to destroy the church. And by the end of the chapter, the whore has fallen off the beast, and the beast is devouring the whore, and the, people, and the, and the church is just watching, you know, the popcorn. Like, wow, that's interesting. All this great big menace that was coming after the church is now destroying itself. That's the picture. So we're seeing that. So the ELCA, I mean, they, they've been pagan for a long time. Their disaster, but the, the, we can't we can't let that silence the voice of the gospel. 
Okay, so what I want to do, this is, I think, the argument that I want to make, that I started saying, is that the whole movement of our whole kind of where we are in the culture is a result of Gnosticism. Set, that wants to separate the soul from the body and say that the body is an imprisonment and the soul is what's right. So let's just take an example. If, if I for, uh, came to you and I said, I, I, my body seems something like a man's body, but my inside to you, my inner life, is more like a woman. So this is the kind of absurdity that's been suggested that you're like a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa, right? So let's say that that argument is being made. How would the Gnostic respond? Which one is right and which one is wrong? The inner life has to be right. And the outer has to be wrong. Because after all, it's this matter that's fallen. It's this matter that's corrupt. It's this matter that's wicked and sinful. And the spirit must be right and true. And so now I set my own inner life against my outer life. And, and the inner has to overcome the outer. Not only if, uh, remember how this goes. Uh, can I read you something? This is the last line of the Gospel of uh, Thomas. How many of you were reading this last night? <laughs> I saw one hand go up, but I think it was just a, a hair. This is what Jesus says to Peter in the last line of the Gospel of Thomas. And he's talking about Mary Magdalene. Sorry, I have too many notes here. Oh, come on. I thought it was right there. Hippolytus. Ah, here. Jesus, okay, so here, this is this is verse 22 of the Gospel of Thomas, and then the last verse, verse 114 of the Gospel of Thomas. First, in, in verse 22, Jesus saw infants being suckled, and he said to his disciples, These infants who suck are like those who enter the kingdom. He said to them, they said to him, Shall we enter the kingdom as infants? Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and the female one, so that the male will not be male, or the female female, and when you fashion eyes in the place of an eye, and a hand in the place of a hand, and a foot in the place of a foot, and a likeness in the place of a likeness, then you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Gospel of Thomas. Second century. Here's the last line of the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, Simon Peter comes to Jesus, and he's talking about Mary Magdalene, and says, we need to get rid of Mary, because she's a woman, and she can't hang out with us. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus, yeah, that's already bad enough, but then listen to what happens after. Jesus says, look, I will guide her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit like you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's astonishing, right? That's the Gnostic idea. The Gnostic idea, in fact, is that, um, is that this idea of male and female is utterly wicked already in itself. And so the way to, the, to become a participant in the life to come is to move beyond these categories of male and female. So it's, it's there from the very beginning. Here, here's how Irenaeus wrote about it in Against Heresies, talking about the Gnostics. Some of them hold that one man was formed after the image and likeness of God who was masculo-feminine. That was the spiritual man. And then later, another man, Adam, was formed out of the earth. So that the Gnostics thought when a man became a woman or when a woman became a man, that they were entering into that eternal life where those divisions cease. This was the androgynous ideal of paganism. 
And it was there from the very get-go. Now, there's a lot of conclusions that we can build from that. But here's the main one. And I hope this is kind of simple. That is, that this is nothing new. What we're facing now in our own culture is what every Christian has faced when they've dealt with pagan cultures. It seems to us like a new phenomenon, because we probably haven't had it in the United States in the last couple hundred years or something like that, but it's not new for the church. It's something that's been there the whole time. And so that we can, we can speak... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we can speak very clearly God's law. Here's how He created us. And we can speak very clearly God's gospel. We, we want to especially speak that the Lord has created us. That we probably need to we probably need to preach more about that. I was one time trying to make a joke, and we'll end with this, and then we'll do questions. We have time for I don't know how. Is it time to stop? Time to eat now? Oh boy! How did that happen? So uh, one quick thing, then, and then we'll come back. I was talking to a friend, and I said, you know. I'm jealous of the martyrs because they all got to get martyred for preaching that Jesus was Lord, and we had to get martyred for preaching that a man is a man. <laughs> you know? That marriage is a man and a woman. It just doesn't seem as cool as getting martyred for confessing Christ. And uh, my friend rebukes me pretty soundly, and he says, uh, do you, Are you forgetting John the Baptist? Remember why John the Baptist was beheaded? For preaching about marriage and divorce. So the church has this role of standing up and saying, Oh, this is how God created us, male and female, He created us, all this sort of stuff. And then we rejoice in uh, these gifts, not only that God has given, but also the, the forgiveness of sins that forgives every sort of transgression. We'll talk a little bit about transgression and then, um, and then lean into that theme of martyrdom too. But we'll start with questions when we come back. Pastor Clemmer asked if we could say a prayer. Uh, for lunch. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord, we uh, give you thanks that you've created all things for our good. Uh, we give you thanks for blessing us with the wisdom of your word. We pray that you would also bless the food to our bodies and our bodies to your service. For we ask this through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Any instructions? Pastor, come Head to the gym.